Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio Manager Ramona Prasad is back on the program as she shares her thoughts on investing during these uncertain times of economic slowdown. Ramona says there's a lot of fear and unpredictability in the markets today, leaving many investors concerned. But she says her approach to the markets during these uncertain times remains focused on a few core factors, downside protection and risk-adjusted return. She adds the type of investor that is attracted to a dividend-oriented strategy wants some amount of stability in returns and lower volatility. When you focus on the downside protection, you get these results. Ramona practices a lot of patience these days and says she doesn't mind missing the beginning of a turn up because she gets more by protecting the downside. She tends to be more discerning in a market that has higher than average emotionality because of higher uncertainty, which means Ramona will wait even more for results for valuations. This podcast was recorded on October 6, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Great to see you again, Ramona. How are you today? I'm great. Nice to see you too, Pamela. Let's go through a little bit about what really matters most to you in terms of the way you invest. We've obviously mentioned dividends and we'll get into that, but this is a moment where people are talking about capital preservation being somewhat careful in these markets. Just remind us sort of how you approach things. Yeah, so we're looking for three things in combination. So just as a sort of baseline us, we're looking for excess return like everyone else, but two more things also downside protection and a reasonable level of income. And so if you put those three things together, we're really talking about risk adjusted total return. And the way that we measure that is in something called an information ratio, which is essentially your excess return over the amount of risk that you've taken. So in a market like this, the downside protection part of of the things we're looking for really tends to stand out. It tends to be even more of a focus for me. The type of investor who's attracted to a dividend-oriented strategy wants, I think, um, some amount of stability in the return stream, some amount of lower volatility. And so when you focus a lot on downside protection, you get that. And the results over, uh, I guess we've been doing this for 12 years or so, have sort of borne that out. So the capture profile, so what, how we do in down markets versus up markets. So in up markets, the strategy um, has tend to produce sort of mid-90s up capture, so capturing mid-90s of the market. But then really importantly, in the down markets, we're in the high 70s. So that's a really big spread. And so if you take that spread and you comp, you compound for, for a strategy that tends to be fully invested, this is an important thing. So a big philosophical way that we manage money is in this sort of fully invested way. So if you take that spread 
and you let it compound over time, what you get is this very strong risk-adjusted return. So the information ratio that we've done over tenure is 0.6, which for an equity fund is uh, an equity fully invested fund is pretty good. That's very much driven by this downside protection orientation that I think um, really benefits fund holders in environments like these. So, I mean, to an extent, you started off saying excess return and you said like everyone else, but there's that, of course, people are, but the way your style works and, and perhaps waiting for some interesting moments in the markets ahead. I mean, we'll get your thoughts on that in a minute. But again, how does your style kind of differentiate from other people? They're also looking for excess return in the market. You're right. You make a really good point. Everyone wants alpha, right? And real alpha, not beta masquerading as alpha. So yes, when when I say like everyone else, excess return, that's the alpha piece. For me, what's a differentiator are the other two objectives of downside protection and a reasonable amount of yield, because that's how you get the alpha. That's how you end up with a pretty good down capture profile and a sort of good enough up capture profile. So I think that's, that is very differentiating. The incentives for managing funds tends to begin and end with just the alpha piece, just the excess return piece. But to me, it's always been important to think about who the end investor is. And does the end investor just want alpha that's very, very volatile? Many end investors do. I think, and, and through a lot of market research and, and talking to clients over, you know, the last 10 plus years, there's the destination, I like to say this, the destination and the journey, there's the smoothness of that alpha. You know, you can have really bad results for a very long time, and then you get like your five to 10 year performance in one year. That's one way to do it. But one of the problems with that, though, is whether or not the client will stay with you. So, it, you know, the job then expands to trying to make sure the client understands what you're doing and they can stick it out. And so if you lose if you lose that client to, say, a growth strategy or like a hyper growth strategy, have you really achieved your objective of trying to give them a really good 10 year result? And that's that's a different part of the job. We're talking about marketing at this point. But I think really carefully about the stickiness of the end investor. And so to me, that's very much tied to the smoothness of the journey, especially if you're going to be taking cash off of the return stream in the form of dividends. I don't want that cash to be highly volatile. And so that's why I, I sort of think about the, the the smoothness of the ride. Let, let's get your thoughts on sort of what needs to line up, what the market seems to be telling us. Sometimes the market tells us that a pivot by the Fed is imminent. Sometimes the market doesn't tell us that. We've seen some pain. Do you, do you think, think we've seen most of the pain at this point? This goes to valuation, obviously. I've, I've called this market treacherous um, all year, and I continue to call it treacherous. Uh, so I'll get to your question about valuation and pain, but I think it's good to like to at least tell you how I, how I see it in more holistic terms. And the reason I call it treacherous is because the factors driving this market are very unpredictable, more unpredictable than average. And so to me, that gets you into treacherous lands. The primary factor is central bank policy. So I'm not saying Fed policy. That's a big part of central bank policy. I'm saying central banks. So all of a sudden, you've got like this variable that's really unpredictable, which is one central bank. And then you've got all the other big central banks, the BOJ, the BOE, who, you know, all the people who track um, the, the U.S. Fed. And then you have to think about the interactions of all of them. So that just takes you into sort of geometric math world, very unpredictable. So that's just one factor. And then you've got sort of exogenous factors like the war between Russia and its neighbors, um, specifically Ukraine, China's COVID policy, like all these factors 
that have put you into extremely unpredictable land. And then, you know, tied to this is the stickiness of inflation. That's like the biggest question right now. That's sort of at the center of uncertainty. And that sort of shifted from supply constraints to central bank policy that's explicitly targeting demand. So, for instance, housing and employment, at, in the U.S. anyway, are in the crosshairs. And we've not seen that in a really long time. Like, that is the definition of treacherous. So, in my mind, when you get into a market like that, that, you know, you know all that I just gave you, I'm just going to summarize and call it treacherous. The opportunity, so you have to think about, okay, that sounds really scary. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is you can get outsized higher than average price inefficiency, because when you have higher than average unpredictability, you have higher than average outsized emotionality, fear, right? If, if you can assume there are like more humans, um, more normally wired humans than machines in the marketplace, which I think is a reasonable assumption, it's like the analogy is assuming that there are more people driving cars on the road than autonomous cars. So you're going to get like, you're going to get surprises, negative surprises often. So there's this higher emotionality, which means you're going to sort of cycle between fear and euphoria, depending on what comes in from unpredictable variables. So what that means to me is my bar for valuation has to be even more stringent. Like I have to be even more discerning especially if I've got a downside protection mindset in the way I do things, I don't mind missing the beginning of a turn, a turn up. And, and I've sort of proven this to myself. I used to be, you know, I used to get frustrated when I started doing this at missing the beginning of a turn. And I realized that's just not the kind of investor I am. Like I get it back and more by protecting the downside. So I will tend to be more discerning in a market that has higher than average emotionality because of higher uncertainty, which means that I'm going to wait even more with more resolve for, for valuations. And so you had actually asked a valuation question. I, I just don't think we're there yet. And we can get into it. I have like numbers if you want. Well, yeah, I mean, let's, let's look a little bit at sort of either what you need to see or, you know, where you think we are in terms of valuations. I mean, here we yeah. are on the cusp of earnings. What do you see? So let's do valuation holistically, and then, and then later on we can go into sectors. But I look at it a lot of different ways. There's so many ways to look at it. So you could look at the market, any given market. People like to point to the U.S. S&P 500, and you know that that's derated a lot from a really high right. number. But is it like absolutely cheap? Not really, considering that that multiple tends to be extremely correlated to interest rates. <laughs> if the direction of rates is up and there is a non-zero probability that our central bank, the US central bank is in a Volcker 2.0 type mindset. I don't know what probability to put on that, but I think it's non-zero. Then is, you know, a 15 times on the S&P 500 enough? Unclear. And so to me, until that answer is clear, the, um, the pace, the decision to and pace of re-risking is, we're just not there yet. So that's kind of holistic, looking at an absolute multiple. The thing I love to look at is fear. And so one of the best ways to measure fear is in dispersion, valuation dispersion in the market. And I talk about this a lot. And so there's so many different ways to measure dispersion. And so, and what's nice right now is that it's very consistent, no matter how you measure it. So what you see in valuation dispersion today is a good amount of fear around earnings. One way to put that is if you take kind of like a valuation super factor and you look at like forward earnings of that super factor and you, you know, you fractile it and you do whatever, 
differences of the fractals, what you'll see is that we're on. I love that. You fractile it. Yeah. (laughs) You fractile it. Well, that's an abstraction. Like typically they quintile or quartile, but I like to extract because, you know, you go, go do it however you want to do it. What you see is you're probably around like one standard deviation in terms of like the normalized valuation spread. I think like it doesn't get interesting until it starts to approach two. So one is good. So we're kind of getting there, but like, I'll give you, I'll, I'll contextualize that number in COVID. So before the market turned that, that same consistent way of measuring fear got to like four to five. That's like one of the biggest we've ever seen. So typically I like to get to around two before it really signals something to me. I'm only like at one. In fact, a little lower than one, a couple of months ago, it was higher. So, you know, eh, it's sort of middling. And then that's on earnings. And when you look at, um, that's actually a valuation super factor. When you look at earnings specific, so that doesn't really tell me anything per se right now. When you look at um, earnings specifically, Denise likes to measure it this way. She like percentiles it. It's like 95th percentile or, or something cheap on earnings. And so what that says is there's a lot of fear around profitability as there should be. You, you know, you've had all this stimulus in the last few years. So demand, so sort of like peaky demand. And then you've got like, um, you've got uh, costs that are inflating rapidly. So only really high quality companies can handle that, right? Through, through real pricing power, through pricing power. So that would be above inflation. So yes, the market understands that. And so it's showing up in fear in earnings. But what I think is really interesting is when you look at fear beyond that. So a way to do that quantifiably is when you look at book value, so so book value, like how, how, you know, sort of your balance sheet, the equity on your balance sheet relative to how your security is priced, fear, it's creeping up, but it's not that high. So if if on earnings, it was 95th percentile, a couple of weeks ago, it was like 60 something percentile on book, and maybe now it's like 70, 75, and that's better, but is that like enough fear about solvency, about viability, of a company. And in if this environment, sorry, I'm like, really? No, no, I'm loving this because I was asking about a default cycle, but you're just answering all the questions. Right. So, so yeah. if, so if this environment is one where you've got peak demand and you've got like really highly inflated costs, even if, you know, leading economic indicators of inflation are coming down, like those costs can tend to be very sticky in your P&L. And what that then means is only really well-run companies can handle that. That means there's a lot of viability risk in maybe the average company. And that's not showing up in valuation. So that's what gives me sort of conviction that we're not quite there yet, especially knowing that as an investor, I don't mind missing some of the turn because over, well, whatever years, like a lot of years of, of being, you know, a gladiator, if you will, being in the ring in this market, it's okay to miss a little bit of the turn because you more than get it back by being this careful right now. So what are your thoughts on the benefits of rising rates, cost of capital, for banks and financials versus the drag of a slowing economy on the overall sector? It's a really good question around financials, especially banks, because oftentimes you'll get this scenario where rates are rising to try to cool down an economy and you have to then realize the risk is whether the the central bank that's doing that is really that capable of doing it in a very like balanced, effective way. So that is to say your margins at a bank would go up from higher rates. But if the Fed is, if, if sorry, the central bank is not that effective, then you're going to get a credit cycle. So the question becomes, 
the risk around the positive risk around higher margins versus the negative risk around credit. And, and sort of what I learned from from doing banks, doing banks through the global financial crisis all throughout the world is I don't tend to bet on margins over credit, like unless valuation is telling me that there's you know good sort of alpha odds. So when I look at banks. Only the banks that have, like Wells Fargo is the only one in the US that's just like reasonably cheap. It's like maybe 80% of book value. All the other ones are hovering around book value, maybe slightly lower than book value without, without anyone really stress testing the book. And that's okay, that's cheap, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So I've been adding risk extremely slowly and cheap banks is one place to do it, but my pace there is quite glacial because I like for banks on book to really to really have reflect that the the investors have thought through NIM versus so net interest margin versus credit costs the the um the if you will the 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 range of outcomes or the sort of geometricness I, I'm struggling to find the word the yeah the the variability around right. credit outcomes versus the variability around margin outcomes makes it in my mind from my experience no contest no contest. Okay. So the well, variability around credit outcomes is just so wide, and the reason the word geometric came to me is when you get when you get an economic slowdown, and it's better this time than going into the GFC in the sense that the balance sheets are better. When you get sort of a recession, the hit to credit is is way less predictable and way higher, therefore much higher variability than when you're getting rates rising and margins. Um, margins expanding. So you just have to be extremely careful. Okay. This is this is going to to your process ultimately. So can you explain or kind of expand on your sell policy and process considering your focus on downside protection? Valuation is the biggest driver of selling. I've had companies that I've loved just really respect the management the way they run, the way they just view the world, like a very broad mindset. So the ability to just think strategically and execute tactically is is rare. So, you know, you love the company and then, uh, you know, I will have sold them because valuation just didn't really make any sense. And th those can be hard decisions. So that tends to be a pretty stock specific way to get at selling. Another way is when the capital allocation priorities shift away from the investor who wants steady and stable dividends. So even if the fundamentals of the company seem good and the valuation's okay, if a company is going through a big like CapEx cycle, if they have to go and spend a whole lot of money and it, it risks the free cash flow for a while, for a few years, and that would put pressure on the dividend, which would perhaps ultimately impact valuation. If I can get there before the market realizes this, that's a reason to sell. What do you think of energy companies on that? I mean, that's sort of been the story of energy companies giving money back to shareholders so, in various different ways, but. So the opposite, right. The opposite of what I'm like improving capital allocation. They, they have in the prior cycle spent so much, not really gotten sort of rewarded by investors for it. And in fact, in an era of extremely low rates where there was huge free cash flow production in other sectors, like more mature tech, for instance, like very capital light sectors, sectors that had become more, had become less capital intensive. So tons of accelerated free cash flow production. 
the market investors turned to these capital intensive sectors and said, what are you doing? Like all this other stuff over there has gotten capital light and you guys are just throwing capital into the ground and you put the ESG overlay on it, right? So they've heard this um, and now have, for many reasons, been more careful with CapEx. And where I'm going with this is all of a sudden, if you look at something like CapEx to sales, um, CapEx period, but certainly CapEx to sales, it's like at an unprecedented low, which means that the the, uh, the other side of that definitionally, uh, you know, assuming a reasonable environment is huge free cash flow production. Because this is right. sort of what they've been hearing in so many different ways from the marketplace, right? They've been hearing mm-hmm. don't invest. I think Do they still uh, look good just because we've seen, yeah. you know, we've seen them come back clearly? Do yeah, they still so, look exactly. So I had gotten really interested in energy when you got like the most stable parts of the sector that were at really healthy double digit free cash flow yields on the back of what I'm talking about. This like sort of supply demand imbalance, supply because of the, you know, reducing uh, capital intensity, if you will. And so all of a sudden, then the free cash flow production can be really high and the and the stocks weren't priced for that. So you're getting great free cash flow yields. So I had um, in the last couple of years, like sort of in this COVID pandemic times, like really accelerated my in, increased my energy positioning for that reason. It was just really good valuation and a good sort of fundamental backdrop. And that worked quite well. So then we got, we ended up with a portfolio construction problem, which is that this sector ended up being a very big part of my funds. And I tend to be careful on portfolio construction, especially with highly speculative industries like um, energy. So I pulled, right, I pulled some of that back purely from a portfolio construction and sort of valuation perspective, because they had run a lot. Then the sector gave some back and at this point, I still have a lot of energy. It's just not as big as it was before. Valuations are, they're good. They're not what they were when I was like really adding to it. And I would like to, if that were to happen again, I think I would add to it because the fundamental backdrop is, I think, one that is hard to bet against in terms of just simply supply demand, CapEx intensity, free cash flow production, assuming that demand doesn't get really crushed. Right. Okay. So that's really, that's fascinating because I, there's a lot of questions around oil and the OPEC story, OPEC plus today, but, but also just that overall question of the equity side of it. Do they still look interesting? So tell us a little bit more about your positioning right now. And if you've seen Joel lately, actually, as well, sometimes (laughs) you tell us. Yeah, I do. I I see Joel all the time. Um, Joel and I have met all throughout the pandemic, mostly by Zoom. And now that we're like back, I mean, he lives half a mile from my house. And so like, you know, people run into each other in Boston. It's kind of a town, not a city. Um, So I got to see him. But what's really nice is continuing these conversations, these like organic conversations about life, frankly, and about markets. And so what he and I are still on the same page that we talked about in July, which is the word I use is treacherous, which is like a heavy, intense word. And the word he uses is confusing which is a more neutral, generous <laughs> word. And we, we agree that in a market like that, where we completely agree that uncertainty is higher, so predictability is lower, and on your sort of continuum of flexibility to conviction, you have to lean hard into flexibility. Like it's very hard to have conviction in much outside of the conviction that I've, I've demonstrated to you all today around like where valuation is and isn't. So you lean into flexibility and you sort of watch essentially things like data and valuation very closely, more closely than average. And so the the conversations he and I continue to have have that flavor to them. 
that it's confusing and you on the continuum of flexibility to conviction you're leaning more you're leaning more uh flexibility did you want to do other sectors yeah i did but i also want to get to international but yeah let's let's just quickly like position i'll do it quick I'll do it quick. So I'm more I'm more defensive than not, which is not surprising given everything that I've that I've said. I own a lot of staples, more for construction, portfolio construction, given relative defensiveness in an environment like this. I'm worried about inflation in staples, their ability to pass through. So it tends to be really high quality staples. I own a lot of energy for the reason I just said. I'm pretty underweight industrials. I can't get there on valuation. I think margins have some risk. I still own a lot of healthcare. I think inside of healthcare, you can get like single digit multiples of pretty high quality companies with decent pricing power, especially given the administration we have here, which is a good setup and an ability to handle inflation relative to other sectors. Financials and discretionary are the interesting ones. I'm pretty under, I've been pretty underweight those and that would be where my incremental re-risking would happen, but very slowly off of a really big underweight. I've become overweight utilities where I can find some value, a couple of different things going on there, the clean energy spend that's right. um, still happening benefits um, some of these folks. And also from a portfolio construction perspective, you're able to bring, um, bring your volatility profile down. So valuation is a tricky part there. And then tech, Kind of neutral. I I don't tend to be you know your hyper growth or even your growthy tech investor. I tend to be a legacy tech or mature tech investor. And inside of legacy tech, you can find some some tech that's that's derated a lot. So like Taiwan Semi, especially Taiwanese tech, given the China geopolitical stuff. Right. There's a lot inside of Taiwanese cyclical tech that has derated like crazy. If you look at Taiwan Semi, very good company over the long term, like a lot less expensive today than recently. So, let's, so that's let's a run take, Let's take that just to go geopolitical, because part of the reason the story there is, is, is in fact geopolitical, or part of it anyway. How do you look at the rest of the world right now? I mean, we can put the dollar in or not, but the rest yeah. of the world seems to be going through some pain. How does that yeah. look further out? Agreed. So this is that question that we have we have talked about every time we meet. One of the burning questions as a global investor is like U.S. versus ex-U.S. and specifically U.S. versus Europe, because the valuation differential between U.S. and Europe, it's as if like it just keeps getting wider and wider. And what I've said consistently is yes. And especially as a person that likes value, you're drawn to it. And like you're drawn, especially to the U.K., because you can get a lot of quality there. And what's really important is fundamentals. So that valuation dis disparity has been justified because the fu fundamentals, if we just go to the thing I said before, free cash flow production in the U.S. from in a, in a globalization type world, from capital intensity going down, free cash flow production has just been incredible in many sectors. So the U.S. was appropriately, you know, in that interest rate regime, appropriately rewarded for that relative to something like Europe. So this is one of the places where being a value type person, you can get really tripped up because you you get into these valuation differentials without putting enough weight on things like fundamentals and momentum. And I think today, especially in Europe, with so many different headwinds, like different types of headwinds, one of which is just energy security and the hostility around energy supply. So not only, you know, is Russia like being um, reluctant, it's a nice, a nice way to put it, on supply, but like you've got like terrorism to supply and then you've got OPEC. So I think you've got so many headwinds that it creates like geometric math 
in terms of the risk. And human brains don't do, like normal human brains don't do geometric math. I do have incredible respect for the complexity of geometric math and a clear understanding that the average investor, which is typically a normal brain, so not like, you know, kind of standard deviations type brain, doesn't do geometric math. And I don't think I need to do geometric math. I think I just need to respect that. And so my respect for that tells me that even though there's this massive ever-widening differential, say, between the U.S. and Europe, because the risks are so compounded in sort of what feels like, like a geometric way. So the perfect example of geometric versus additive was the global financial crisis and how you had all these cross currents that were combining in a geometric compounding way. Because that's the case there, you can't really figure out what valuation makes sense. Your valuation bar has to be like so high. And when you look at fear based on valuation dispersion, it's just not there. Like simply, simply put, it's not there. It could get a lot higher. Okay, it could get a lot higher. So yeah. fascinating and, and really great to get your positioning to sort of tell us how you're positioned at this point and ultimately what you need to see. Ramona Prasad, thank you for joining us, for um, breaking our brains a little bit, but on all the right ways. Great to see you. Nice to see you too. Thanks for the time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.